So James 1 verses 1 to 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Brilliant. Thank you, Kate. Um, right, I'll hand over to Rui. Thank you. Now we're going to be looking at James today. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. But I want to start by just saying something. When people have said to me that I can be single-minded I've not always thought of it as a compliment. When I think of the word single-minded, I can often think of the word, or that describing somebody who's obstinate or, or blinkered in their view of life. But actually being single-minded is not necessarily wrong. Being single-minded in your devotion to someone or something is not necessarily wrong. If I wasn't single-minded in my devotion to being married to Becky, that would be wrong. And we're going to look at a bit of God's word today, which which talks about being single minded in our devotion to and our focus on God. And I think that's a pretty much a, a picture of what the whole book of James is looking to tell us as well, that we should be single minded in our devotion to our God. Now, I don't know about you, but um, some people will have looked at the book of James before. And if you have, then apologies, because we're going to do a, a really big, a really brief um, overview of what James is as a book. Um, so if you haven't read it before, if you haven't found it yet in your Bibles, do look it up in the content section. But it's just after all the letters that we think Paul has written, just after Hebrews, you get the letter that James writes. And if you've ever heard anything about James before, you know that sometimes it can feel like a bit of an uncomfortable read. Sometimes we read it and we can it looks like he's saying that we can be justified with God. We can be made right with God. We can have that barrier between us and God removed by what we do. But we've just, you know, where it is in our Bibles is just after all the teachings that Paul has given us, which tell us that our justification with God is by faith alone. It's not by anything we do or by anything we deserve. It's all by what Jesus has done for us. So we can sometimes end up in an end point when we read James 
And I know I've read James in the past and, and I've sort of squared that by thinking that faith without works is not true faith. That's what I've sometimes thought about the book of James. But just a bit of a teaser here, because I think there's something deeper than that going on in James. It's not just about faith without works not being true faith, but it's about something deeper. So let's have a look. So who is this James? Who is this guy who wrote this letter? We know about Paul, got a lot of information about him. But who is James? Well, we find in John's gospel and in Mark's gospel that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And one of them listed there is somebody called James. Now, we know also that James, uh, that Jesus's brothers and sisters didn't believe in him while he was alive. They didn't understand what he was trying to say. In fact, they thought he was mad at some points. But after Jesus died and came back to life, it's it's recorded in one Corinthians that Jesus appeared to James and the other disciples. Jesus appeared to his brother, James, after his death. And that must have had a profound impact on James. And it did change him. It changed him into somebody who became an early leader of that that church in Jerusalem, that that group of believers, that group of people who were following the Lord Jesus. James became a leader of that church. If you look at Acts 15, uh, from verse 12, in fact, I'm going to read from verse 12, where it says this, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done amongst the Gentiles through them. So Barnabas and Paul are there before this council of elders in Jerusalem, and they're describing all of the amazing things that God has done through them in that Greek Roman world. And in verse 13, it says this, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. And James goes on to say a few things. But right at the end in verse 19, it says this. James says this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, what that message is about is a completely different sermon. That's not what we're going to look at today. But actually, James is this person who's standing up before this council in Jerusalem, these early leaders of the church before Paul and Barnabas and Peter. And he's making a judgment that they're all listening to. James is an early leader of this new church, and he could almost be called the first bishop of Jerusalem. But he introduces himself in this letter in verse one as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not after an exalted position. He is a servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, his own brother or half-brother. So why would the letter of that this guy James, who's writing, why would that be important to us? Well, in that same verse, in verse 1, it says that this letter is written to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations, and he gives them greetings. The 12 tribes was often a phrase that was used to describe those people who would be gathered back into God's kingdom when he came again. And we know that in Acts 11, verse 19, it talks about those early believers being scattered throughout that Roman world because of persecution. When Stephen was stoned, the church scattered amongst the nations. 
So James here, this early leader of this church that's growing, is writing to the scattered believers amongst the nations. This is a pastor's letter to his flock. Throughout the letter, he talks about them as brothers and sisters, as fellow followers of the Lord Jesus. So this book is written to followers of the Lord Jesus. It is written to us. Those guys were living in a culture that didn't acknowledge that God was king. And that's the same for us today. They were struggling to live lives amongst people who didn't believe in Jesus. That's what we're doing, too. Isn't it a struggle for us to live as authentic believers, authentic followers of the Lord Jesus in our world and our lives today? The world's way keeps pushing in on us and it was pushing in on them. But James writes this pastor's letter to the people to encourage them and help them. So it's speaking through the centuries down to us. This letter is for you and for me. So we should be paying attention to it. We should be paying attention to the message it is sending to us about how we live for God today in our lives. So what does our passage say to us today? Well, we're going to break it down into three chunks. And apologies if you thought we were going to to verse 15, but we're going to break it down into three chunks. And the first chunk is from verses two to four. And in these verses, what we'll be looking at is how we are made perfect through trials. And this is a big topic, isn't it? This is a huge topic. Why does God allow believers to suffer? Why does God allow our brothers and sisters around the world to be put to death? To have their families completely ostracised them, to be cut off completely from their mother and father and brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles? Why does God allow us to have the health issues and problems that we have? These are huge questions even for us today. There's no complete answer in these three verses. I I don't want to build it up into something bigger than it is. But there is a conviction in these three verses that suffering is under God's control. It's not something that is happening independent of him. It is something that is happening under his control and it is for our best. We don't worship an evil God. He is a good, good father. But trials do come to us. Difficulties do come to us. Suffering does come to us. It might be illness. It might be health. It might be financial difficulties. It might be hostility from the world around us for following Jesus. And I don't need to talk to you about what that is like. If you go to school now, if you're one of the guys who still goes to school, you know that it is so difficult to stand up for Jesus in your school. You know, it is so difficult to be different from everybody else around you who's following the world's ways. We know in our families the heartache of having those members of our family who don't want to follow our Lord Jesus, who the agony in our own hearts, the crushing feeling we feel when we see that they're not following Jesus. And then the pressure that comes from living in a different way into our own families. Or even in our workplaces, we know that it is difficult to follow Jesus. 
So Jesus, uh, James is so relevant to us. Jesus is as well. But James is so relevant to us today. And here it says that we should consider those trials pure joy. Pure joy. And why? Because of what they produce in us. They produce perseverance. And uh, that should give you echoes of some of the writings of Paul in Romans 5 or Peter in his first letter as well, where it talks about this same thing, that it is a quality that we as Christians need. We need to have that perseverance so that we can face the trials that we must face. And we have that perseverance so that the trials can finish a work in us, a work to make us mature and perfect and complete. Now, we won't be mature and perfect and complete this side of eternity. But I'd like to be more perfect each day. I'd like to be more complete each day. If you spoke to my family, I'm sure they'd want me to be more perfect and complete each day as well. But we have to let the suffering of the trials we face keep on making us, keep on making me into the perfect and complete person that God wants me to be. And that is so hard. That is so, so hard because we want to run away from problems. We want to run away from those trials. Or we might want to try and control those problems ourselves by perhaps even saying Christian sounding things like our trials aren't as bad as somebody else's. Instead, these verses call us to let that work be finished in us. These trials we've been given and we've all been given different ones and we've been given different ones according to what we can bear. So we shouldn't think that our trials are lesser than somebody else's. God's given us the trials we have to make us into the people he wants us to be. But these trials don't prove if we have a faith or not. They strengthen the faith we already have. They are making us more and more perfect in our faith, in our God and in who he is. They are deepening our commitment to our God in Christ. So these first three verses are saying to us that we've got to let these trials continue their course so that we can be made perfect through trials. Our next four verses from verses five to eight are about being made wise through single mindedness. Our last three verses ended by saying that we should lack nothing. We should lack nothing. But verse five starts by saying that if we lack wisdom, we should ask for it. And it's great to think of the timing that we have sometimes when we look at books like this, because we've just finished a series looking at Proverbs, looking at a book full of wisdom and aimed at trying to give us wisdom. And James, throughout his book, is full of references that his hearers, being Jews who would have known what we call the Old Testament, but that would have been the scriptures that they knew, they would have been so familiar with them. So hearing these things about having to get wisdom would have made them think that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
that fear of holding God in his right place as the Lord of our lives, as the only one to follow. That's the only wisdom to have, <coughs> a wisdom that comes from God. And our verses here in James tell us that we should ask God to give us his wisdom. It's in God's character to give good and perfect gifts to his people. That is a consistent part of who he is. Now, that's not to say that he is some magic tap that we can turn on and off whenever we fancy something new. He's not. But Proverbs 2, 6 says that for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Wisdom comes from God and he is the only place to go to to ask for it. And it is so easy to follow a different wisdom in this world. We looked at that when we looked at Proverbs. But actually God's wisdom is the only one we should be following. And we can ask confidently. These verses talk about us, about us having faith to pray to our father in heaven. And we should have an unwavering faith. The image that's used here is of one who has no doubt, who, if we have doubt, is like a ship tossed about on the waves, blown about by the wind from left to right, up and down, not knowing which way is port or starboard. Instead, we're to have that certainty, that lack of doubt that God will give us the wisdom that we need for life. We shouldn't dispute that God will do what he says he will do. Instead, we can be made wise. We can have a single mindedness, not a double mindedness, but a single mindedness focused on God's wisdom. By having faith that God will answer our prayers for that wisdom because he is a consistent God. And therefore, we should not doubt but we've got to be single minded in our belief in who God is. And that is just like Jesus taught, isn't it? In Matthew 22, Jesus is uh, responding to a scribe who's asking him what the, the most important commandment is. And Jesus quotes from the book, book of Deuteronomy. And he says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. We are not to be double-minded this is to be complete single-minded devotion to God and we are made wise through that single-mindedness we're made into ships that are blown about by double-mindedness by looking at this world and what it is it has to offer but we can be single-minded when we look at the wisdom that comes from God and that leaves us leads us to our last few verses, verses 9 to 12. And in these verses, James starts to talk about us being eternally focused, focused on eternity and on heaven rather than on what's going on around us today. In these verses, James looks at both poor and rich believers. He's writing to believers. Don't forget that. He's writing to people who are following the Lord Jesus. And he writes to poor and to rich Christians. So for poor believers, what he says is they should have pride in their high position. That would have been so strange for them to hear. They wouldn't have felt 
that they had a high position in the society they lived in. They might have been marginalized, not able to work and do the things they wanted to do, not able to earn the money to support themselves. They would have been struggling. They might have had to beg for money and scraps of food to live. But James says they should have pride in their high position. And that high position is that they are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. They are children of the King of Heaven. And that is what they are to take pride in, the high position they have because of what Christ did for them on that cross. By his death, he made it possible for them to enter into the family of our Heavenly Father. That is an awesome high position for them. It's an awesome high position for us, too, as followers of the Lord Jesus. James goes on to talk about rich believers, too, possibly trusting in their wealth for their security. We're not entirely sure, but he does say that wealth is fleeting here in these verses. He's quoting almost word for word from a bit of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verses six to eight, where it says that wealth will fade. And that is a promise. Wealth will fade. But God's word will endure forever. So they're being encouraged not to focus on their wealth, but again, to focus on our God. And I don't know where you feel you might be, whether you feel that you are a, a poor follower of the Lord Jesus or you feel that you're relatively blessed by him. But in both of those positions, we're taught to look at who our God is, to look at the fact that we are his children and to focus on his words, to focus on him and not on our situation and our circumstances today. Both are being called to be eternally focused, not on what's going on in the world around them. And yes, they are to live in this world, but they're not to be so overtaken by it that it takes the place of God in their lives. Instead, they are to focus on their position as children of the sovereign God, bought by Christ's death for them on the cross. And when they have that eternal focus, then they will get their prize in heaven. They will wear the victor's wreath, that crown, when they succeed and come into the eternal kingdom. So in those verses, these believers that James is writing to are being encouraged to be eternally focused. And, and that's something we should be as well. We should be focused on eternity rather than all the stuff that's going on around us, all the stuff that can distract us, all the stuff that can edge God out of our lives. We should be eternally focused. So that's our passage for today. We get a start, we get a glimpse of what James is going to be writing in the rest of his letter through these verses, that we are made perfect through our trials and we've got to let them finish their work in us. That we are made wise through being single-minded in our devotion to God. And we should be eternally focused too. So my initial thoughts about James, about James being about faith without works not being true faith is, is, is slightly right. It is slightly right. Don't get me wrong. But this letter is subtly different. This letter is talking to a group of 
Christians, of believers, of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are living amongst people who are not following him. Just like us. And James is warning them that it is possible to be double minded, to be. To be having one eye on God's eternal kingdom and one eye on this world. James, through this letter, will be encouraging us to be single minded, to be completely and utterly focused on God. Because our God is a jealous God. We can so easily become an adulterous generation looking at what this world has to offer rather than what our Lord offers us for eternity. So instead of being tossed about, instead of being double minded, what we're called to be is to be single minded in our devotion and our focus on God. And that's what we see through James. This letter is an encouragement to us as believers today, and I hope it's an encouragement to you today. James is calling us to be single minded, not to be double minded, but to be single minded in following our God. I'm going to hand back to Graham in a minute, but let me just pray first before I hand back. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for this time of looking at this bit of your words to us. We thank you that we as followers of the Lord Jesus today can look back on these messages to followers 2000 years ago and see that there's nothing new under the sun. That actually is just as easy now as it was then to be pulled away by this world, away from being completely devoted to you, Lord. So we pray that as we look to to be your people, as we seek to go from this meeting tonight to be your people in the different places you've put us, that, Father, you would help us to be single minded, not double minded, but single minded in our focus on you and on your eternal kingdom. Father, we pray that you strengthen us and help us to do that. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.